Thank you for listening, but please be advised that I make mistakes and appreciate being corrected when I do. If you have a correction for me, you can send it to livingthroughextinction at gmail.com. Please also be aware that I sometimes use what some would consider to be foul language, so listener discretion is advised. Oh, and one more thing. I had surgery two days ago, and the breathing tube left me with a scratchy throat, but I record when I can, so it is what it is. My apologies for how this is probably affecting my voice for this episode. This is episode 66 of Living Through Extinction, a short-to-the-point podcast with science, skepticism, environment, wildlife, and ways we as people can be better for future generations. I've been exploring biases in healthcare lately, and today I'm going to start with the one that seems to have the most data available at this time, sexual-based biases. Future episodes will talk about racial-based biases, LGBT-based biases, and weight-based biases, though they will not all be in a row. Also on today's episode, I talk about why it's not possible for mRNA vaccines to alter our DNA, a biodegradable superglue from mistletoe, and VR treatments for mental health. If you've joined me before, then thank you so much for returning. If this is your first time listening to Living Through Extinction, welcome! I hope you find it both fun and informative. One of the many bullshit vaccine claims going around is that mRNA vaccines alter our DNA. So I just figured I'd explain not only that this isn't happening, but also why it actually can't happen. It's just not possible. For one thing, it breaks down very quickly. Once the instructions on how to make the spike protein are delivered to the muscle cells, the mRNA immediately begins to break down and is completely gone within two days. It doesn't have a chance to get inside the cells to reach the DNA. You see, where it goes is the cytoplasm, and the DNA is not in the cytoplasm. It's located in the nucleus of the cell. In order to access the DNA, the mRNA would have to cross the nuclear membrane. In order to do that, it would need to have a nuclear access signal programmed into it. It doesn't have this, so it can't even get to the DNA if it wants to. But say none of that's a factor, let's pretend there's no nuclear membrane or that it allows mRNA to pass through as is, no problem. Then what? This is RNA we're talking about, not DNA. They're completely different languages. In order for RNA to affect DNA in any way, the RNA would have to be reverse transcribed into DNA. For this to even be possible, an enzyme called reverse transcriptase is required. Who names these things, right? Anyway, RNA does not have this enzyme, which would allow it to be reverse transcribed. Okay, so now let's pretend that none of the previous issues I mentioned exist. Even if there were no membrane, which there is, even if it could pass through the membrane, which it can't, even if it was able to transcribe itself into DNA, which it can't, it would still require yet another enzyme in order to integrate itself into the existing DNA. That enzyme is called integrase, and the RNA does not contain this either. When you look at the whole picture, according to Dr. Paul Offit on a video at the website for the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, chances are not just small that mRNA could change one's DNA. They are zero. So stop spreading bullshit and be skeptical, damn it.
Glues are an environmental issue that many researchers continue to work on. We need glues in our society, but most suck when it comes to the environment. Researchers at McGill University worked with the Max Planck Institute of Colloids and Interfaces to create a superglue from the mistletoe plant. Mistletoe plants contain a substance called bison. Vison is made up of ultra-stiff but flexible fibers, and it adheres to things our traditional glues don't always work on, such as skin, cartilage, and other various tested synthetic materials. The vison comes directly out of the plant's berries. Mistletoe is a parasitic plant. The berries exude these, what I refer to as snot lines, and they take the seeds with them. The snot line allows for the seeds to stick to and infect host plants. It's apparently a rather simple process to make a biomedical glue from this vison substance that makes up this snot line. The hope is to make use of it in the medical field as a wound sealant. The material they have come up with can be stretched out to a thin film and stuck over large wounds. One single mistletoe berry can make up to two meters of the snotty sticky thread. And mistletoe plants are abundant, they're biodegradable, and they're completely renewable. We should be getting more of our sticky substances from sources like this. This research has been published in PNAS Nexus. Dolphins are funny creatures, but did you know that it's thought they might be using pufferfish to get high? Puffers produce a potent defensive chemical and eject it when threatened, while poisonous, like anything, the poison is in the dose. Get a small enough dose and it's more likely to get you wasted. What led to this conclusion were observations of dolphins playing with pufferfish. When the dolphins catch a regular fish as prey, the fish are immediately torn apart and consumed. Yet when a group of dolphins gets a hold of a pufferfish, they're observed handling them more gently and seemingly deliberately. A group of dolphins will pass a pufferfish from one to the other and back again for 20 to 30 minutes at a time. Now the thought of it being true is super fun, but nothing has been definitively proven here. I want to be clear that this is pure conjecture based on observation, but it definitely looks like they're puff puff passing the pufferfish, and I think that's fucking hilarious on its own. I'm doing a series on biases and discriminations in healthcare. Today I'm going to go over the one that seems to have the largest accumulation of data for it. Sexual bias. While there are a few areas where these biases hurt men, the great majority of them are still to this day doing harm to women. So while it may seem like I'm focusing on women's issues in this segment, that's just because that's where these biases have the highest negative effects. I mean, it's better than it once was, that's for sure. We've come a long way, but there's still a very long way to go for equality in healthcare between men and women. For the great majority of human history, the male form was studied. Drugs were tested on men. Diagnoses were based on how men's bodies work. It's only in the last century that we've even begun to acknowledge that some therapies and drugs work differently on men than they do on women. On the other side of that, there are times when women should be treated the same as men and are not. And both of these circumstances lead to delayed care and prolonged suffering. Aristotle spoke of the superior male form and inferior female matter. Yes, we were simply matter. He also declared women to be unbalanced because of their wombs. It was not uncommon at one time for doctors to recommend marriage as a cure for psychological disorders in women. And then, of course, there was hysteria. 
Basically, any and all sexual or emotional behavior in a female that was not liked by a man meant that he could declare her hysterical and have her involuntarily committed. And get this. The diagnosis of hysteria was not removed from the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders until 1980. Every time it was reprinted, it continued to include hysteria, right up until 1980. We're not talking about centuries ago here. While there are centuries of study on the male body, there are only decades of study on the female body. That in itself puts females at greater risk in many areas. One of the largest blind spots in medicine with women seems to be endometriosis. It affects one in every 10 women, yet it still takes seven to eight years on average for diagnosis. These women suffer for years when they could be being treated, but their pain is brushed off by doctors for actual years before finally trying to figure things out. One young lady who eventually found out she suffered from endometriosis was told by her doctor that the pain she was experiencing would improve when she had a baby. This was a 13-year-old. A 13-year-old who suffered in pain for years after that before finally getting the diagnosis and treatment to help her. Pain in women and pain in men is overwhelmingly treated differently when it should not be. This is an area with a whole lot of studies that are very interesting. Even female doctors sometimes show the same biases. There are way too many stories out there from women who were told that their pain was just cramps, who actually ended up having endometriosis, ovarian cysts, even cancer. A 2018 study found that doctors often view men with chronic pain as brave or stoic, but view women with chronic pain as emotional or hysterical. This same study also showed that doctors were more likely to treat women's pain as a mental health condition instead of as a physical one. This was just four years ago. Even in 2021, studies showed that doctors were more likely to recommend therapy to women in pain instead of the pain meds that they would prescribe to a male patient with the same symptoms. It's also been shown that women are more likely to be prescribed a sedative for the same symptoms that would have a painkiller prescribed to a man. A 2015 study of over 18,000 people just diagnosed with cancer showed that females waited way longer to receive their diagnosis after they first reported their symptoms. Men with the same symptoms were taken seriously more quickly. And when it comes to cancer, that can be the difference between a good and a bad outcome. Let's, let's be real. It's a difference between life and death. Heart disease is another area where women are not being treated as quickly as they should be. If you are female, you are far less likely to be recommended for timely treatment for heart disease and heart attacks. This is why, though men suffer more heart attacks, women are more likely to die when brought to the hospital with one. Chances are they had symptoms for some time, but when it comes to heart attacks, women actually present very differently from men, and it's the male symptoms that doctors are familiar with. According to Dr. Steve Novella at Science-Based Medicine, it is just now being increasingly recognized that women receive less aggressive preventative, diagnostic, and acute cardiac care than men do. When doctors learn about typical heart patients, they are taught of older men with crushing chest pain, shortness of breath, and sweats. Women have more varied locations and types of pain, or may not have chest pain at all. What many consider an atypical presentation of heart disease is actually typical for women. However, these symptoms are still labeled atypical 
so they're not being learned properly. Dr. Novella points out that just in calling these symptoms atypical is biased towards men. We need to be teaching the typical signs for men and the typical signs for women. It would make things so much clearer. Medical News Today says that male-female bias has a significant effect on medical diagnosis and the quality of healthcare people receive. They say that this is leading to substantial delays in diagnosis, misdiagnosis, and even death. A direct quote from one of their articles is, Gender bias in healthcare is a critical, well-documented problem that endangers people's lives and well-being. Unquote. When it comes to dementia, women tend to receive less monitoring and are given more harmful medications than men. A Denmark study showed that 72% of the time, women wait longer for any major diagnosis than men. Women are more likely to be diagnosed with depression or anxiety before having their physical symptoms investigated. While it affects everyone, women also tend to experience more weight biases than men do. A doctor is more likely to prescribe weight loss to a woman than explore her symptoms as they would with a man of the same size. Study after study shows longer delays in care for women with the same test results as men. Women don't get taken seriously until something very serious happens, and by then it could be too late, or they may have been suffering for years unnecessarily. These biases are based on false beliefs, old information, and generalizations based on the male body. I mentioned in the beginning of the segment that there are biases with men in certain health areas as well. The largest gap in our system for men is mental health. Women were traditionally known as the unstable ones, hysteria and all that bullshit. But as a result of all those outdated beliefs, mental illness is much more likely to go underdiagnosed or have a delayed diagnosis in men today. Just like the problem with female heart symptoms not presenting the same, Mental health symptoms in men can present very differently than they do in women. Due to the fact that women have spent more time being treated and studied in areas of mental health, and also partly due to stereotypes of typical masculinity keeping men from seeking help, there's a large lack of awareness of how mental health symptoms might appear in men. Two other issues more commonly associated with women are migraines and hypothyroidism. Doctors sometimes discount symptoms of these in men, leading to prolonged symptoms and suffering when they could be getting treatment. Overall, though, the gaps in medical research are majorly in women. Men were always considered better test subjects because of things like menstrual cycles and the possibility of pregnancy in women. But the biological differences affect how treatments work, how drugs affect them, how diseases present in the body, and even how different physical therapies work. The doctors I came across in my reading for the segment all agree that both sexes have to be studied and taught equally going forward. And just because something is more common in one sex does not mean it will not occur in someone of the opposite sex. And more physicians need to take that fact more seriously. And it is beginning on the research side. There's a growing understanding of the importance of representation in human research studies. And women now make up about one half of participants in NIH-supported clinical research. NIH is the National Institute of Health, by the way. I'd like to think that the medical professionals that our grandchildren encounter will have a more fully rounded education on both male and female bodies because of their efforts. I love my VR, despite the fact that I don't actually get to spend a lot of time with it. 
Imagine being able to download scenarios for therapy-based reasons. I would be all over that. And it's definitely on the way, if not for me, then for my kids for sure. VR is being experimented with to be used as a mental health tool. Now, for me, video games are already a mental health tool. They give me that rush of endorphins, that feeling of accomplishment. But researchers are working on using it to treat PTSD, phobias, anxiety disorders, particularly social anxiety, and more. It's been tested with height phobias and used to help with depression, addiction, and pain. But the primary use at this time is for anxiety disorders. One system being tested is called Game Change, and it's designed for agoraphobia. A virtual guide takes the patient through scenarios designed to slowly expose them to their fear over time. And the actual presence of an actual therapist is not necessary at all for these treatments. A study was done using Game Change, which included 346 participants. With weekly sessions, the majority of participants reached a point where the anxiety and stress usually felt in normal everyday situations was significantly reduced. The greatest results were seen with those who had extreme agoraphobia. Theoretically, scenarios could be written to fit all sorts of clinical settings. And another positive point to this idea is not just the VR treatments themselves, but access. Not everyone can get out of the house to seek the therapy they need, and with this, therapists could interact in real time through an avatar. One of the biggest hurdles we have in North America is access, whether it's for financial reasons, mobility reasons, or living in the middle of nowhere reasons. Whatever the reason, access is important and not everyone has it, and this might make it possible for some, not all, but some who didn't have that access before, now be granted it. The Game Change study was published in the American Journal of Psychiatry. That's another one done. My apologies for the scratchy voice today. Thank you so much for listening, and may your health and sanity be replenished daily. I would like to express some giant thank yous to the following people. Jason Martin for helping me get started on this project more than two years ago. I wouldn't be doing this right now if not for him. Kathy Rayner for her musical contribution on the violin. Paul Palmer for his musical contribution on the guitar. He can be found at WPG Suitcase Drummer on Instagram or playing live with Toad Turner. Dustin Harder for composing and recording the intro and outro for the show. You can find him on Facebook at Toad Turner The Chronicles, Instagram at Prairie Soul Music, or see him playing live with Toad Turner. And finally, thank you to my family, who puts up with me hiding in my bedroom, reading articles and making notes for hours on end, so I can do this podcast thing, because I think it might actually help keep me sane. I hope to be in your ears again in two weeks for episode 67 of Living Through Extinction. If you enjoyed Living Through Extinction and would like to support the show, the best ways to do so are to subscribe and rate, and to comment and like positive comments on your favorite podcast player, or you can help out by following, liking, and sharing on all the social medias. The show can be found under Living Through Extinction on Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, and TikTok, and under LTE Pod on Twitter. There is also a Patreon at patreon.com slash livingthroughextinction. There you can earn stickers, pins, masks, and more, as well as help me to plant some trees. If you have any comments, corrections, questions, or suggestions, please email them to livingthroughextinction at gmail.com or message me through one of the social medias. <laughs>